you have your Bibles, open to Ruth chapter 2. We're going to continue our series this morning looking at lessons from Old Testament leaders. And this morning we're going to be in my favorite book of the Old Testament, looking at one of my favorite characters of the Old Testament, the man named Boaz. So as you guys are turning there, I'll just tell you guys, many of uh, the ladies in the room have been in the book of Ruth before. They know it. It's a book about women. It's a book about romance. Uh, many of our dudes maybe haven't really been in the book of Ruth. They know the candy bar baby Ruth. In fact, they're probably feeling a little hungry right about now. But I want to do for us as we jump into Ruth chapter 2, especially if you know the storyline and you know where this book ends with this man named Boaz and this lady named Ruth. They kind of meet and boom chicka boom and happy live ever after. All right. Probably won't use that again, but nonetheless. All right. <laughs> These guys are going to get together. And for many of us, we know where the story is going. We know that's where the story ends up. And so as we jump into the story of Ruth, especially the first encounter between Boaz and Ruth in chapter 2, many of us inclined are to think of the book of Ruth in chapter 2 of Ruth as a story of love at first sight. I want to submit to you as we look at chapter 2 of the book of Ruth, it is nothing about love at first sight. If anything, it's about grace at first sight, because what's happening in chapter 2 of the book of Ruth has nothing to do with romance. In fact, what reminds me a little bit of Ruth chapter 2 is a little bit of my own story of my own bride and I, uh, who got married back in 2002, but our dating story and our experience through much of college was (laughs) not textbook, classic fairy tale, love at first sight. Because you see, when we were dating, we were best friends, and somewhere in our junior year, I had the bright idea that maybe we could kind of become something more than just friends, and we would have a series of conversations throughout the spring of our junior year in which my wife-to-be would then clarify over and over again the status and the nature of our friendship, and that's what it was going to be. There were a few conversations throughout there that she might have had a maybe, I'm not sure, but we've kind of come back to no, and then to maybe, and then to no. It was a little bit more, not of love at first sight, but it was more of a romantic tragedy and romantic roadkill. It was painful, Okay. It was never a story I would wish upon any other human life being. It was just that difficult, all right? Even when we finally, finally, when I finally got a first date with this amazing lady 14 months after our first conversation, yes, 14 months later, okay? We would have a couple breakups, even in the midst of dating, okay? So we never really got our act together in a perfect way. Our story was anything but love at first sight. Really, as we jump into Ruth chapter 2, again, I want to submit to you, it's not at all about love at first sight. So as you and I may know the stories, we know that Boaz and Ruth are going to get married. I want you to kind of take those romantic love story goggles off and put them aside, and we'll get to the romance story later on in the end of the book. But in Ruth chapter 2, it's way more about grace at first sight than it is about love at first sight. Like, let me set up the book of Ruth for you afresh if you don't know the storyline. We're going to pick it up in chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Ruth. Chapter 1, verse 1. And as we set up the book for you, what we're going to see in the setting as it unfolds is we're going to see a tragedy hit a family of four that's going to shatter all of their false security in life. Notice chapter 1, verse 1. Text tells us that it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. Chapter 1, verse 1, the first half of it sets up for us the context, the setting of our story. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the days when the judges governed, which really takes us back to Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, that says this. This is just the book prior. It tells us this. This is how the book of Judges ends. This is the context for our story of Ruth. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. According to the book of Judges, what we find as we jump into Ruth chapter 1 is that this is an incredibly dark time in the nation of Israel's history. 
The nation is not obeying the law at all. There is no king over the nation who's executing the law. Everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. It was a period of immorality. It was a period of wickedness. It was a dark, dark day in the life of the nation of Israel. Which means it ought not surprise us that according to chapter 1, verse 1 of Ruth, that we find this, that there was a famine in the land. As you walk through the Old Testament, really kind of basic Old Testament history one-on-one, if you want to understand it, is this. That when the nation of Israel obeyed their God, God blessed them and that life was good. They would have a king. They would live in the land. The land was bearing fruit. It was full. It was bountiful. But when they disobeyed God, when they abandoned their God, his blessings were restrained and pulled back and they were cursed instead. They would be kicked off the land. They would lose their king. They would lose bountiful provision in the land. And so in Ruth chapter 1 verse 1, when it says there was, no, there was a famine in the land, it shows that they're under the discipline and the judgment of God. I alluded to this even last week. The fact that here it says there was a famine in the land literally means that in Bethlehem, that's name it, house of bread, there was no bread. It's meant to scream out a contrast that something was horribly wrong in Ruth 1-1. That the very place where bread should have been, it's not there. That if there's no bread in Bethlehem, it's a dark time. It's a difficult time. And so you're going to have a man named Elimelech. You're going to notice what he does. Notice the rest of verse 1. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. This man who's a responsible individual for his family of four is looking at the situation and the circumstances. And he sees that there's no food in the land. And he has to provide for them and he has to protect them. And so in the midst of those circumstances that actually were intended to drive the nation of Israel back to worship their God. He instead decides to take another move. And he moves his family out from the judgment of God and he heads off to Moab. The question will be this. As he takes his family from Bethlehem to Moab is his decision and his leadership of the family one of faith or one of fear? Is it one in which he submitted himself to his God or is it one in which he's taken matters in his own hands to try to control circumstances? It's interesting, verse 2, we get his name. Verse 2 tells us the name of the man was Elimelech and his name literally means my God is king. In the midst of this pressure, in the midst of this stress and trial, this guy whose name means my God is king, the question becomes all the more stark. Does he act as if his God is king? Or does he take matters into his own hands? I think the narrative as it unfolds will give us a clue. It will lean us in a direction because notice what happens according to verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. We'll come back to these guys in a minute. Epaphrodites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and they remained there. Verse 3, and then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. Opening verses of the book of Ruth, there's a famine in the land. This man takes his family to a foreign land where he's killed and he dies. And now you have a woman left by herself without the guarantee of protection or provision with two sons. The story continues on in verse 4. Notice, tells us that they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, not Oprah, all right? And the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. And then verse 5, then both Malon and Kilion also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. A couple of things. One, uh, these guys have really interesting names, okay? Uh, Malon and Kilion, if it were me as a Trekkie, don't judge me, okay? These guys sound like Klingon names to me, all right? I just imagine them in a Star Trek movie, all right? Malon and Kilion, okay? Uh, what's worse is their names, literally, Malon literally means sickly. 
Kilion literally means frail and mortal, which just becomes self-fulfilling prophecy of the fact that by verse 5, they're dead. Okay? Horrible. Okay? Who names their child sickly little one? Right? Who does that? Uh, it's a question I often wrestled with all of my life because you may not realize this. This is a moment of trust between me and you. Okay? So hang with me. But my legal name is actually, wait for it, Huey. Okay? <laughs> it's a little rough growing up. Uh, I often thought to myself, why in the world would my parents curse me with such a name that the first day of elementary school, I would have to get there early to get to the teacher and to beg the teacher, please, in the roll call moment, don't call me Huey, right? It's like, I go by Trey. Can we just kind of avoid the embarrassing moment? But often I couldn't get there. And so here it would be, roll call, first day of elementary school, Huey Gory, here, laughter, just social suicide upon me, all right? It was horrible, okay? I had to deal with that, all right? If Huey was bad, how much worse was Malon and Killian, Okay. Horrible names, okay? And they become self-fulfilling prophecy because by verse 5, Naomi has lost her husband and she's lost her two sons and all she's left with is foreign daughters-in-laws, okay? This is not a good situation. By the end of verse 5, these women have no guarantee of provision and no guarantee of protection in a foreign land. Situation is exceedingly vulnerable and exceedingly stark at this moment in time. In fact, Naomi is going to summarize the events that have unfolded in chapter 1, verse 21. Notice how she sums it up in this happy-go-lucky moment. You can tell I'm being sarcastic. Verse 21, she says, I went out full when I left Bethlehem, but I've returned here and they brought me back empty. She says, why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? She says, look, when I left home, I was full. Everything was going well. I go to Moab, and all of a sudden, my husband and my sons are all dead and gone within 10 years. And now I have nothing. Nothing. She's just utterly broken. And what you're going to find as we jump into chapter 2 is that these two women are going to return back to Bethlehem, back to their homeland, or at least Naomi's homeland. And these are going to be two women with no guarantee of protection and no guarantee of provision. They are utterly vulnerable and utterly helpless They cannot control their own circumstances, which is why what we're going to find as we jump into chapter 2 is that this tragedy will shatter their false security, but it's going to give way to this. The grace that's going to unfold here in a minute is going to reveal the sovereignty of God. Chapter 2, verse 2, notice what unfolds here as we jump into the narrative. Ruth the Moabitess, who had gone back with Naomi to Naomi's homeland, says this, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I might find favor. And Naomi said to her, Go, my daughter. Chapter 2, as it unfolds, is not a women searching for love and romance. It's women who are destitute, helpless, vulnerable, and needy, looking for favor and looking for grace. They are literally beggars looking for a handout because they are so vulnerable and in so much trouble. They're going to step into a field and they're going to glean because they're appealing to the Levitical law that had made provision for the needy and the helpless. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 to 10 say this. Where'd you go? Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and the stranger, for I am the Lord your God. Levitical law made provision for the needy and for the helpless within the city and within the community. It required landowners and business owners to not cultivate, to not gather glean from the edges of their fields so that as people would travel by, if they were needy, if they were poor, if they were destitute, God would have provided for them through the provision of the corners of their field. Or if they had actually had to travel through a field to get somewhere, whatever had actually fallen on the ground was to not be picked up, but it was to be provision for the poor and the needy within the city and within the community. But here's the deal. 
As these women show up in the time of the judges in Ruth chapter 2 to come and glean in the field, everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And so what is the likelihood that they're going to find a field and a business owner that's abiding by the Mosaic law? It's exceedingly unlikely. Why? Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Everyone would have wanted to maximize their profits and to leave the corners of the field unattended or to glean and whatever falls to the ground, which would have happened often to not be able to be gathered, would have cost a business its profits, would have jeopardized the very stability and security of a business and a landowner. And so in the days of the judges, when everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, what is the likelihood that Naomi and Ruth are going to find such a landowner and such a business owner that would have abided by the requirements of the Levitical law? It is going to be a supernatural act of God. In fact, what's going to unfold as we see the search for grace is we're going to see a series of circumstances that God will align in such a way that you begin to get a quick sense that the extension of grace is coming because of the sovereignty of God. I want to show you the pieces here that unfold that begin to give us an optimistic sense that something is going to go well for Naomi and Ruth as they're looking for favor, that God is going to find a way to extend it to them. Notice chapter 1, verse 22. Notice how our chapter ends after Naomi says, I have gone out full and now I'm empty. Notice chapter 1, verse 21, the beginning of a reversal. Or chapter 1, verse 22. So Naomi returned and with her Ruth of Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. A famine had hit the land according to chapter 1, verse 1. But by the end of chapter 2, the famine has relented. And now it's the beginning of barley harvest and the harvest is coming in. And so these women are returning at a time when they're utterly helpless, utterly desperate. But God is beginning to orchestrate the circumstances in agriculture at the time to possibly provide for them. Chapter 1, verse 22 is the first sign, the first sun ray breaking through a dark set of clouds. Chapter 2, verse 1 is another sun ray as well. Notice this. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. As we jump into chapter 2, the narrator introduces you and I, the reader, to Boaz way before he actually enters the scene in the narrative just three verses later. Why? Why does the narrator want us to know that, that Elimelech has a kinsman, a redeemer, a relative that's exceedingly wealthy named Boaz? Why? Because the narrator is trying to help you and I begin to get a sense that God is orchestrating and prearranging circumstances so that these two women who are in search of favor and grace are going to find it extended to them. Why? Because there's a man, a family acquaintance who's exceedingly wealthy. And not only is he wealthy, but apparently he's godly. Notice chapter 2, verse 4. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to his reapers, he shows up at his workplace and he says this. May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. As we just kind of skim through the narrative, as you're just reading along, it doesn't really seem that unique and that significant. But if you think about the context of the book, when everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes, and it's a season and a period in Israel's history that's exceedingly dark, immoral, and wicked. Here you have a man who shows up to his workplace, and he has the kind of relationship with his employees in which he blesses them and honors the Lord. And they honor the Lord in return and in reciprocation. Chapter 2, verse 4, not just a man who's wealthy, but a man who's godly, who set up a place of work in which the men and women are honoring the Lord in it, in a time in which the judges governed was a beacon of light in an incredibly dark period of time. It's meant to be stunning contrast. And so all of a sudden, you and I begin to see these two women who are in search of favor and in search of, of grace 
as beggars in a field, as those that are needy and vulnerable, all of a sudden we begin to see God arranging their circumstances that foreshadows that they're going to find grace. He's brought them back at barley harvest. He's arranged an individual who's in their family who's both wealthy and godly. And last, but certainly not least, my favorite, verse 3. And so she departed and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Of all the fields, of all the men, of all the workplaces, of all the places she could have landed up, she lands up here. The Hebrew says, literally, her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. Or put it in our vernacular, her luck lucked upon the field of Boaz. Was it by luck at all that she ended up there? Of course not. It's the sovereign hand of God. Reminds me a little bit, again, when I was dating my bride-to-be, uh, before we ever got to the dating stage, I realized I was interested in her, and I kind of got a sense of her class schedule, and so I would just so happen to show up outside of her classroom, okay, every Tuesday, Thursday, and so I kind of got a sense of where she'd be, and so I would jump up and just kind of happen to be there. She would just bump into me. Oh, what are the chances, right? Uh, And then we would walk to the next set of classes in which we would get time every Tuesday, Thursday, just one-on-one hanging out as we go from one class to the next. What I would communicate to her maybe a year later once we finally got to a place of stability in dating was that really wasn't by chance at all. Um, I had left my class early every single Tuesday, Thursday, I had run across campus to get to where I knew your class led out. And as I walked with you along the way to both of our classes, it was actually in the opposite direction again. And so I would drop you off and then be late because we were talking long and I would have to run across the other side of campus. Okay. To Marcy, it just seemed like we had just bumped into each other. Clearly we hadn't. And clearly there's a fine line between stalking and clever arrangement of circumstances. Okay. But again, I won and it worked out. All right, here I am. Okay. I think just like we just bumped into each other, so I think the text is trying to help clue us in that it's not by chance or by luck that Naomi or Ruth just shows up in Boaz's field, that her chance didn't just chance upon um, Boaz's field. A little Hebrew humor for you this morning, all right? These guys are getting crazy in Ruth, okay? So that's where we find ourselves. The, the, the sense that the circumstances are being arranged so that grace could be extended to these women, and in fact, it will be extended because of the generosity of Boaz. I want you guys to see exactly what Boaz does here. This is a businessman who's going to respond in a unique way that I think is telling and is significant. I want you guys to see first what he does. He's going to uphold the requirement of the political law. Let's pick it up in verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go and glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you're thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Skip it on down to verse 14. Notice how it continues. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. The emptiness is now becoming fullness from the simple start of a simple belly. And not only is that one belly filled, but it's filled to the point that it's overflowing that she has some left. Verse 15. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. What was the Levitical requirement? Let them come around the edges of the field, the poor, the beggar, the foreigner, the stranger. And you can let them walk into the field, but they can only grab what has already fallen to the ground. And he tells her workers, hey, 
Not only do you need to protect her, not only should no one touch her, but I want you to feed her, give her water, and I want you to let her glean, not just on the edges, but I want you to let her glean even among the sheaves themselves. He goes beyond the requirement of the law. It goes further. Verse 15, when she rose to glean, uh, verse 16, and also you shall pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening and then she beat out what she gleaned and was about an epaph of barley. Verse 18, she took it up and went into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and she also took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. The scene that unfolds here in chapter 2 in terms of what Boaz does is simply this, that his generosity extends far and above and beyond what the Levitical law required in a day and time in which no one was obeying the Levitical law. I love that quote in Leviticus that we kind of flew past and when she gives provision for the corners and the fact that if anything falls, it's to be captured for the poor and the needy. And the quote ends in Leviticus and says, for I am the Lord your God. Why does he end it that way? I think one of the things that we see over and over again, especially from our Old Testament, it is the very heartbeat, it is the very character, it is the very desire and will and movement of God to always go towards the needy, to always go towards the destitute, those that have no face, those that have no name, those that have no voice. He always moves towards them. He's always on the move towards them. And he's calling his people in the Old Testament to be in the movement with him towards them as well. But what I love about Boaz is that he doesn't just stop at what the law requires, but he goes one step, two steps, three steps even further because not only does Ruth get a full belly and have leftovers, but she's got so much leftover, she comes back into the city to Naomi and she's just heaping the overflow upon Naomi. So you get a sense of what Boaz does, but the question is, why does he do it? Why does he do what he does here in terms of his lavish generosity? A couple things. One, again, as we started out this morning, I think a lot of us that know the story of Boaz and Ruth think that maybe Boaz is angling with a romantic angle and hope for intimacy and hope for a relationship here. I don't think that's the case. A couple reasons why. One, think about the first time that they run into each other here. He has a sense of a reputation for how she's cared for and accompanied uh, Naomi. Uh, But their first encounter is not your textbook moment of a first encounter for a guy and a girl, right? Where and how does he first venture upon her? She's been out in a field working all day. She's stinky, she's funky, she's nasty, she's ripe, okay? This is not her putting her best foot forward, all makeup and dolled up. That's not at all what's going on here, all right? Notice also his first words to her in verse 8. What does he say to her? Verse 8, chapter 2. First time he has a chance to speak to her, and he says, Listen carefully, my daughter. I was never great with the ladies. I'm pretty sure that's not a great pickup line, though, okay? (laughs) I don't think that's really how you get a thing kind of cranked up and going, all right? Listen carefully, lady. My daughter, all right? I don't think this is like a who's your daddy moment either, all right? I don't think that's what's going on, all right? I think he's an older man that recognizes a sense of distinction and separation with her, and so he honors her, and everything that frames his motive in chapter 2 is nothing about romance. It's about the extension of grace and kindness as God had called his people in his pursuit and care and love for those that were needy, for those that had no voice, face, or name that he was calling his people to move towards them. That's exactly what Boaz is doing, and romance is not shaping it at all. Why else does he do what he does? Second thing I think I want you guys to see, back to verse 4, is this. Notice what he says in verse 4 when he shows up to his workplace. Verse 4, Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to his reapers, he shows up at the office, May the Lord bless you. May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. 
Again, in the time of the judges, this kind of workplace moment was shocking, right? What does it reveal about Boaz? I think it reveals that Boaz saw his workplace as a place of worship. That Boaz saw his workplace as a place of worship. Notice again what he says to Ruth in verse 12, thinking about wage and compensation. He says this, chapter 2, verse 12, to Ruth. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. I think Boaz looked at his workplace as an opportunity for him to worship the living God. It framed his interactions with his employees. It framed his response to his city. It framed his response even to the needy in the community. Because he had a view of work, he had a view of his industry, he had a view of his profession that I think fused faith and work together. The last few years we've been doing and speaking a lot lot more about this topic. In fact, we've highlighted a series of books for you guys through the years that I think speak to this topic that I think are fantastic. A couple of different ones for you that I think have really, for me, helped me begin to think about how in the world does our Monday to Friday workplace get shaped and influenced by our faith. I think Boaz is an example of this as a businessman in the Old Testament, and it's stunning, and it's, it should have caused you to stop in your tracks and think, what in the world's going on? Uh, we've talked about this a little bit the last few years, trying to help uh, each of us begin to understand how in the world does our Sunday worship connect with our Monday to Friday, wherever it is that we go. For some of you, maybe as students, for some of you, maybe into a workplace, for some of you, maybe at home as a stay-at-home mom, and whatever your vocational situation is at this point in time, how does faith impact the place that you serve with the greatest of your faculties and your time? A few of the resources that we've highlighted the last few years are these that I think are fantastic. Andy Crouch has a book called Culture Making that's fantastic. Tom Nelson has a book called Work Matters. And then I think the pinnacle in the field that's been, I think, the most helpful for me is a book by Tim Keller called Every Good Endeavor. I think few people position and connect the idea of faith with work in a way that Keller does. It really brings understanding to exactly, I think, what was happening for Boaz here in Ruth chapter 2. There's another book that has come out that's been brought to my attention recently by a fellow staff member that I'm going to kind of step into a new area with you guys on. But it's a book called The Search for God in Guinness, a biography of the beer that changed the world. (laughs) If I get fired, come today, you'll know what happened. There's this quote, all right? But what I think is fascinating about this book is they look at Guinness beer, is they look at an individual who launched an enterprise and a craft of beer in such a way to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. If I can't put faith and beer together for you, uh, then then this is going to blow your mind. But notice what happens as these guys founded this business. Here's a quote from it. Stephen Mansfield in the book, In the Search for God in Guinness, says this, What Arthur Guinness founded was a venture propelled by faith. Yes, but by a kind of faith that inspires men to make their work in this world an offering to God, to understand craft and discipline, love of labor. It was a venture of faith, and much of the great 250-year history of Guinness beer is a story in which wealth gained through faith-inspired excellence was then used to serve others for the glory of God. These guys had a dream to make a beer, and they went about it in such a way in a pursuit of excellence that their faith required But as it succeeded and as it took off, the entire motive was an investment for the good of the city, which is why they were doing it. In fact, the book continues on. I want to read you guys a little bit more. And I think this is fascinating. He continues on and he says this, that from the beginning of their corporate and family history, the Guinnesses had embraced their obligation to the needy of the world. That it wasn't primarily about them. They saw their workplace as an opportunity to worship the living God. And they saw their workplace as an opportunity to benefit the city and the community and those that were most in need. 
He goes on further and he says that this began at home with their own employees. Edward Cecil Guinness, great-grandson of founder Arthur, expressed a foundational company conviction when he said this. You cannot make money from people unless you're willing for people to make money from you. And accordingly, the Guinness Brewery routinely paid wages that were 10 to 20% higher than average and had a reputation as the best place to work in Ireland. And, as important to many employees, allowed workers two pints a day of their famous dark stout. It's a little different for me, but okay. Moreover, the benefits of the company that gave its employees were massive. The book details that they had two doctors on staff on their premise in their office, two dentists. They had pensions for all their employees. They had savings bank on site. They had a fund to borrow for. They had a fund for employees to borrow from when they wanted to purchase a house. They gave educational benefits and classes for free. They even gave money to families for a vacation excursion day. These guys made a choice early on that I think Boaz models in Ruth chapter 2 in which these guys wanted to have a, a business that was a blessing to the city and the community that they were part of. And they were willing to be a blessing when it meant they wouldn't be able to maximize their profits. The Levitical law required that you couldn't have all the profit that was sitting there in the land. You didn't have to follow the law. Boaz follows the law and he goes even a step further and he gives even more away. He doesn't hold, he doesn't hoard. He made a choice, in a sense, if we were put it in our terms, in a free market economy, not to maximize all possible profit. But he gave it away to the most needy in the city and in the community. And I think what Boaz does for us in the Old Testament, I think what Guinness Beer does for us, if you think about our modern day, is it frames a question for us as we begin to think about our workplaces, our vocations, and our industries, and it's this. How good does your faith and your work connect? Why does it matter what you do Monday to Friday? Or put it like this. How could your work be a blessing to the city? How could you engage in an industry and in a profession in such a way that you were not just making a living, but you were contributing to the common good of the city and the community that you were part of, that the business was hopefully being a blessing to? I want to reshape for you your view of vocation and profession. I want to divide away the sacred and the secular, and I want to integrate it all together for you as you think about your life in whatever compartment of life that you have, whether it's your family life, whether it's your work life, whether it's your worship life, and I want to, like spaghetti, mix it all up for you. Okay. And I want to ask, how in the world does your faith frame what you're doing Monday to Friday? How does your faith impact the way that you see your job and your vocation, and how does it change you to do it in a way that's different than the rest of the world? For some of you, it's really easy to see the impact that you have. Maybe you're in education and you're looking at the next generation of kids that are rising up. That you go, we've got to equip them. We've got to train them so they can succeed and step into a city and a community for its blessing and for its good. For some of you, you're in the medical profession. It's pretty easy to see at times how you bring restoration and healing. For some of you, you're in a different industry. You're in a different kind of job. And maybe it's harder for you to begin to see the connections for how what you do is a blessing to the city and the community that you're a part of. I want to challenge you this morning as you spend some time as you pull away this afternoon. I want you to challenge you just to begin to consider and say, Lord, what is it you would have for me in my profession? How could faith inform my industry? How could faith inform the way I build a business, the way I go about my job? Maybe you're in a startup where you're barely even making it. So these kinds of questions are like, hey, that sounds ideal. That's just not where we are. But even in the very beginning, or maybe you're stepping into a job for the first time and you have no authority and no power. But in the little tiny turf that you have, in the little kind of world that you have some autonomy in, how could your faith frame the way that you engage your coworkers, your bosses, your authorities, and the industry itself? I love the example of Boaz, because I think you see a man here who steps into his profession to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. 
but also have an impact in the city and in his community to make a difference for the good of the city, but even not to the exploitation of those that are needy and vulnerable, but to the lifting of them up to see them flourish and survive and succeed. He does business in a profoundly different kind of way than I think we often think about and we see. So what's the challenge for you and I? What do we do? For some of us, it's, it's thinking more about a profession. But for some of us, I want to move it out of the workplace environment. I want to move it more broadly to this. Back to Leviticus 19, 19, or 19, 9 and 10. I think it's the character, it's the heart, it's the priority of God to always be on the move in compassion and in action toward the needy and the vulnerable in the city and the community. That's the character, that's the heartbeat of God. Our vocations give us an opportunity to be a part of that story, but we also have an opportunity to be a part of that beyond our vocation. So as you guys exit out this morning, you're going to see, even as you entered in this morning, a lot of our community outreach organizations that we partner with that are having a huge impact in our city are out in the portico. And our hope and our desire for you guys as you think about this morning and as you exit is that you'd knock on their door, that you'd stop at their table and you'd say, hey, what is it that you guys are seeing is happening in our city? I know for me, one of the first issues I have is that I just have an alignment issue in my life in which I allow my life and the sphere of my life just to get smaller and smaller and smaller. So maybe you're a little bit like me where you look at your city and your community and you really honestly don't know the challenges, the injustices, the issues that are going on in the city at large. I just retreat back to the same suburb. I retreat back to the same set of roads that I just live on. And I often don't go beyond that and don't go beyond my bubble. And one of the things that our community partner outreach organizations can do for us is begin to help us to get a sense, to see where we've not seen before, to see what's going on in our city, to see what the needs are, where are the vulnerable, and then not just where are they and what's going on, but then how could we be a part of that solution? How do we engage? How do we contribute? How do we stay off the sidelines but get into it and be a part of the solution and begin to work toward justice and righteousness and reversal of some of these issues in our city and our community? How do we help? I want to give you guys a quote from the Barna Group that put out a book called Unchurched because ultimately I think as we think about community outreach, we think about our city and our community, I don't think there's a more strategic time to engage. And here's why. Here's what he says. 30 years ago, the most effective form of evangelism was widely believed to be a straight out, in your face, confront the sinner declaration of salvation available through Christ. This was the season of Billy Graham. This is the Billy Graham crusades. This is that season in which we just jumped in the moment, the first moment of a conversation and said, you're a sinner without Jesus Christ. You're destined for hell and something has to happen. That was the gospel presentations in that generation. And then we moved from that and we got into more rational, reasonable based evidences for the resurrection and for faith. But then we kept moving, and Barna says this, that a decade or two ago, evangelism shifted to a focus on personal relationships cultivated with eternity in mind. So it wasn't that we come with Jesus bullets in the first conversation, all right? But we build a relationship looking for eventually a moment in which we have an opportunity to share the gospel. It still is going to be confrontational at some point in time, but in the context of the relationship, it felt like there's a safety and an opportunity for us to communicate love and compassion within the context of a relationship. Barna says, though, we believe that we're undergoing another shift today. Wherein doing good in the world is a powerful apologetic to those who are seeking God. Evangelism can happen in the marketplace where Christian leaders run businesses with a biblical view of people not taking advantage of them, but aspiring to help them flourish. Evangelism can also happen in the social sector where we can show how much Jesus cares about the least of these. We talk about this a lot here at Grace Bible Church, that we exist to help people find and follow Jesus. 
But for those that are trying to find Jesus, for those that have not yet entered into faith, for those that are standing outside of the church community and the body, the question they're asking these days is not, is faith true? The question they seem to be profoundly, most significantly asking is this, does it matter? Does it matter at all? And if the church remains a bastion of declaration that stays within its community and within its walls, and all we do is proclaim truth, then we begin to answer the question in a way that the city thinks it is, which is this, that if the church was wiped out of here in this city, then there would be no difference whatsoever as to their absence. That the church is meant to be a bastion of social justice, of righteousness, of good. That in its absence, if it were whisked away, there ought to be a vacuum left behind us. But far too often, the church has left that vacuum not moving at all if they were to be absent. Some of you may have grown up or may have remembered the seasons in which our early history in America had an engagement of community outreach that was often, culturally speaking, an engagement, and they left the gospel behind. And so for many of us, we have a distrust for seeing these two things together. I think what Boaz shows us in business, what the Old Testament is calling us to as a people of God is an engagement for social good alongside of a proclamation of the gospel that they're two hands and they go together. It just hasn't happened historically very well like that in the past. So the church has retreated at times into their own bookstores, coffee shops, neighborhoods, and we've retreated from the public sphere whatsoever. And so the issues that are going on in our city and our community, we don't know about. Therefore, we're not compassionate about, and therefore, we're not engaged to do anything about it. What we want to do this morning, what we want to call you guys to as you guys exit, is that you guys would have some meaningful interactions and conversations with our community outreach organizations that we partner with. And you'd say this, help me to see what's going on in my city and in my community. That in the midst of those conversations, our prayers, your heart is moved and compassion wells up. And all of a sudden, there's a movement and an engagement toward action. Not that we're going to overturn everything, but that we're going to do something. And that whatever sphere and whatever place God's put us, that we're going to make a difference. And whatever scope and whatever size it looks like. But so often for me, I don't know what's going on. And it just feels all overwhelming. And so I do nothing. (laughs) That's why I like Ruth chapter 2 this morning. I think Boaz, in the midst of his workplace, he decides to do something. And for some of us, that might be in our workplace that we decide to do something in the midst of our city and our community. For others, it may be outside of our workplace. It may just be with your volunteer time. And so don't let the morning go by before you really engage with these guys. Grab a flyer, grab an email, uh, set up a breakfast, a lunch, a coffee, a conversation in the coming weeks, and asking what's going on in our city and how as a church body can we be a part of that and how can we move towards it and not just stay disengaged and blind. Our, heart, our hope and our heart as a church is that if we were wiped out of here, we would leave a vacuum within the city in which the city officials and the city itself would grieve our absence because we've been engaged for it for its good. That's our hope and that's our heart. Let me pray for us. Father, we just come before you, and Lord, we confess for many of us as we think about our city and our community, we really don't know what's going on. For many of us, we just already feel like our own lives are absolutely overwhelmed. And so to think about someone else's challenge or to step outside of our world just feels like one more thing. Lord, we confess that to you this morning. (laughs) That's my confession. That's probably for many of us as well. And so, Lord, I just pray that you'd give us the courage. You'd give us the discipline just to take a step this morning and start a conversation. To take a learning posture and to say, hey, Lord, would you help open my eyes to see my city as you see it? See those that have no face, no name, no voice as you see them. 
And Lord, would you begin to move in us with a sense of compassion that would move us to action. Or that we'd be engaged for the good of our city, that we would do justice, that we would do righteousness. And Lord, from that platform as a church body, that you would provide us an all the more meaningful and all the more vivid and all the more impacting proclamation of the gospel. Because a faith and a relationship with Jesus Christ changes everything. That if you're Lord over all, then that sovereignty impacts our business and impacts our presence in a city, in a community, in a cul-de-sac. And Lord, I pray that you would transform us the way that we see our lives and the way that we would move out of a bubble to the city and to the community at large for your good, for your purposes, for the extension and the establishment of your kingdom in a new kind of way. Lord, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit we pray. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here this morning. You guys have some great conversations with our community partners, and we'll see you guys next week.